Okay, we're going to be in Acts chapter number 8 today. Acts chapter number 8. And we've been in uh, this study on Acts for quite a while now. We're not necessarily doing a, a deep dive into the into the passages and into the text, but what we're seeing is the, the growth of the early church. We're seeing the church grow from its infancy, from its uh, new birth there, all the way up until where... Uh, at the end of the book of Acts, it has spread all throughout the region, and really it's going forth towards the ends of the earth. That's what uh, the Lord had said would happen, is that they would uh, preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, and that's what was uh, going on. We find that the the testimony of the lost during that time was that they were turning the world upside down with the gospel. And the book of Acts kind of documents that. I have highlighted all along that Acts is a transitional book. It's not necessarily a book where we get our uh, our teachings and our doctrine for modern day because there are some things there that are unique to that time period, uh, some things that were unique to uh, that uh, those circumstances that they were in at that time. And we're going to see a little bit of that today. But what we were looking at last week is there was a transition, a shift taking place, because up through chapter number seven, we have found that the emphasis was around the 12 apostles, right? Or the 11. And the work that was going on in Jerusalem. But in chapter seven, there was a problem that arose that uh, some of the, the believers thought that their widows were being neglected. And there was uh, somewhat of a, I think it was a, an, a logistical problem uh, because there was difference in culture, there was difference in uh, language, and plus there was a problem just because of the sheer number of people. Uh, the church at that time had grown to uh, up in the tens of thousands, and that had been a lot for the, the 12 apostles to take care of, wasn't it? And so anyway, uh, they were overlooked. They're just uh, I don't think it was malicious or anything, but they were overlooked, and they said, well, uh, we're being neglected. We're being left out. So uh, they started murmuring, and that was threatening a division, especially since things were along a cultural line, right? Because we look through society, and we see that uh, culture uh, is what divides much of society. Yeah. It'll be this group versus that group because they have differences in culture, and that, that kind of draws the line there. And God didn't start a fractured church. He didn't start a church that was cultural, that it was supposed to be divided along all these different lines. Obviously, the, the church is fractured today, right? There's all kinds of divisions, all kinds of different things that exist. But it wasn't God's design. It wasn't God's plan. But it is a result of the, the sin of men. It's a result of some of just the nature of men. But anyway, getting back on track with this, uh, the disciples, the apostles, chose out, or he, excuse me, they had the church to choose out seven men who were going to be deacons, that were going to be servants, to oversee the administrative tasks of that early church. They said, we can't leave the ministry of the word in order to uh, give ourselves to this administrative task where the administration is going to take up all their time, and it's going to stunt the growth of the church and the discipleship and all those things. And so the, the church engages with the disciples, with the apostles. They choose out these seven deacons, and unity is restored. The division is healed up, and 
things go on greatly. There is uh, great growth that happens. There is uh, both spiritually amongst the believers and also numerically. As many people are getting saved, we uh, saw that uh, even the the priests and the religious leaders were converting to Christianity during that time. And so lots of great things happening, but this is a shift. This is a transition. The focus is coming off of the apostles and getting more to the church at large. We're going to be seeing a, a shift taking place in that. And so last week, what we looked at specifically was this one, uh, one deacon by the name of Stephen was still full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was... Uh, very much active. He wasn't just doing his administrative role. He wasn't just uh, he wasn't just seeing the administrative needs of the church, but he was still uh, investing himself in ministry. He was still uh, preaching the truth, getting the gospel out, carrying this out. So this task of the Great Commission wasn't just for the apostles. It was for the whole church. And so uh, Stephen, full of the Holy Ghost, is preaching and teaching. People are being saved, and the ones who are opposing them cannot stand against him. Uh, he is able to so succinctly and so uh, convincingly preach the truth that they cannot refute it. And we've been in arguments with people, and maybe this isn't a good thing, but we've all been in arguments with people and either we start losing or they start losing. And what's the response? What happens when someone starts losing an argument? They become angry. And generally, if you're losing the argument, you need to learn from their, their arguments and to maybe review what you believe and what you're trying to argue for since you're not capable of coming up with a good argument to combat it, right? But we don't do that. That would make too much sense, wouldn't it? Instead, our pride kicks in, and we continue to argue, even though we don't have a leg to stand on. We realize we're losing the argument, and we continue to argue. And we get angry, and usually whenever we get angry, then the next step is we get personal. And so I've always heard that whenever you're having... A, a debate or an argument about someone, or not about someone, but with someone, whenever they cease uh, arguing about the topic or debating about the topic, and whenever they start attacking you personally, you know you've won, right? Or whenever you start attacking them personally, you know you've lost. Okay, we look at it from both directions. And so what happened here is they couldn't withstand Stephen and the knowledge and wisdom that he had about the things of God. And so they began to attack him personally, and they actually went so far as to kill him. And the church there, the early church would have probably, and this is where we left off last week, is the early church would have thought that this was a waste. They would have expected that Stephen, this great man of God, this one who was so effective, the one that was so helpful, the one that was so dedicated, that surely God would deliver him because God had already delivered Peter, already delivered John, some of the others, and surely God would deliver Stephen, and he doesn't. And that would have given the believers reason to pause for just a minute, saying, what's going on here? We expected that God would rescue him, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like, like I said, Peter and the different ones before, but God allowed him to be martyred. 
And in that, we find that even when God's plans don't make sense to us, God is still at work and God knows what he's doing. And God can do more with what we perceive to be a defeat than what we perceive to be a success sometimes. We look back at Joseph's life and he looked at his brothers whenever they uh, were fearing him because of the position that he arose to. And he said, I hold no, uh, no malice against you, no animosity toward you, because what you meant for me for evil, God meant it for good. God has a way of redirecting things, of taking seemingly bad things and bringing them about for good. We're going to see the results of that today. We're going to see what God was doing, because isn't it great whenever we can look back over things and we can see clearly what God was doing from the beginning to the end? But in our own lives, we only see what's going on right now. We don't know what God's working in the current situation and what's going to happen in the future. But something that we can do is we can look at all the situations in the Bible, see, kind of transport ourselves back to their situation, to their circumstance. And if we wouldn't have known what they were going to end up doing, what God was going to end up bringing about because of the circumstances, we would have felt the same way back then, right? You know, we kind of look back at some of these guys and we condemn them. We say, how could he be so upset? Look at what God did. Well, he didn't know what God was going to do. And so in the future, if the Lord tarries his coming, uh, we're going to look back over our lives and say, I can't believe I couldn't see what God was doing back then. And we can see after the fact. You know, they always say hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Y'all heard that saying? Looking back, you can see clearly. And so anyway, the the early church saw the first martyr. They uh, wouldn't have understood it. They would have been a little perplexed by it. But as I said, in chapter number eight, we're going to see how God was using this. Okay, so chapter eight, verse number one is where we'll begin. It says, and Saul was consenting unto his death, the death of Stephen. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city." And so I ask you this, what was the commission given to the apostles by Jesus before he left? What did he tell them to do? Go preach the word. Okay, go preach the word. He gives them a specific plan for their evangelism, right? We look at Acts chapter number one, verse eight. It says, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That was his plan. He says, you'll be witness of me in Jerusalem, all Judea, 
Samaria, outermost parts of the earth. Okay? And up until this point in time, where have the apostles uh, concentrated their efforts? In Jerusalem. We've talked about how great things were going on there, that thousands were being saved, that the church was rejoicing, they were fellowshipping, and everything was going well in Jerusalem. And so as long as everything was going well, what need have they to go outside of that, to leave that? And so if God would not have introduced a little bit of, well, maybe he didn't introduce it, but he allowed it, right? If God wouldn't have allowed the persecution to arise against them, then they would have continued in Jerusalem basically forever, right? And so God allowed a difficulty to come up to prod them a little bit to go forth. And so whenever this difficulty came up, it says uh, that Saul was there, that he was holding the garments of those who were stoning Stephen. He was looking upon it approvingly. He was consenting unto the death. And this, him seeing uh, Stephen act in such a Christ-like manner, we looked at this a little bit last week, him seeing Stephen act in such a Christ-like manner that even whenever his persecutors, even whenever those who were killing him were casting stones at him, he says, he says, Lord, lay this not to their charge. God, don't hold this sin against them. And so basically he was making the same cry as what Jesus did from the cross. Uh, Forgive them, they know not what they do. He says, Jesus, into your hand I commend my spirit. Basically the same things that Jesus did from the cross. And for him to operate with such a spirit-filled peace and such a spirit-filled love and conviction, even all the way up through this persecution and his death, I don't believe Saul of Tarsus had ever seen anything like this before, unless maybe he saw Jesus on the cross. I don't know. But this would be something that would be hard to erase from your mind. It would be something that would be hard to get rid of. There's stories of different people who have been martyred throughout time, uh, but one of them that's always stuck with me a little bit was uh, the story of Jim Elliot. Anyone familiar with the story of Jim Elliot? Okay. Him and a team of missionaries went down to, I believe it was South America, to the Aachen Indians. And they were a cannibalistic tribe. They were an unreached tribe. Uh, no one could have anything to do with them because they killed anyone who came near. So anyway, this group of missionaries uh, went down. They landed a plane. They started uh, building a relationship with these, you know, giving them gifts and things like that, uh, trying to open up communication. And things were going good to a point. And then suddenly one day they were massacred and killed. They landed the plane or they were trying to get, trying to leave or whatnot in the plane. Something happened and they had uh, all these guys throwing spears at them, seeking their lives, trying to kill them. Whenever all they had done is tried to be nice to them, give to them, and try to be a witness, a Christ-like spirit toward them. And so anyway, they, they slaughtered these five men. And even in their death, they were gracious and concerned about or concerned for the welfare of these guys. And as a result of the way that these men lived and these men died, and not just that, but the way that their families uh, responded to this, because even the, the families held no animosity toward these guys, still had a love and a concern for these guys, and even his children would come back later to these very same tribes. And as a result of how this whole circumstance and this whole situation went down, 
that tribe of uh, Indians ended up getting saved. They ended up converting from their paganism and they became Christians because of the martyrdom, because of the death of these five missionary men and because of the way that their families handled it. And his children went back and ministered to these people. His wife went back and uh, spent time with these people. And even the ones who were responsible for throwing the spears ended up becoming Christians and testified afterward that what it was that won them over was the spirit by which they lived and they died, the way that th there was something different they couldn't get out of their minds. Okay, And so that's a more modern-day um, uh, story. I mean, that happened back in, what, the 1960s, I believe? Uh, his, his wife is either still alive or just recently passed. And so that's a, a modern example of this, but that's what happened to Stephen, is the way that he, the grace by which he lived, the way that he died, uh, was a testimony. And so Saul of Tarsus was here looking on all of these things, and I believe the death of Stephen was the very seed that God used in the heart and the mind of Saul of Tarsus that led him to believe and to become a Christian on that road to Damascus. You say, well, it was because he saw the light shine from heaven above him and God speaking to him. I believe that God was working in his heart and breaking up that fallow ground long before uh, the Damascus road, okay? And I believe this is some of the evidence. But in Saul's road toward salvation here, as he was fighting against conviction, as he was fighting against this embattled truth within his mind, we find that there was an increase in anger and in violence and things that took place in him because of this uncertainty. A man that is at unrest in mind is going to be unstable in all areas, right? And we find this happening in Saul. And so as he was consenting to his death, uh, he started a great persecution against all the church which, which was at Jerusalem. And it says they were scattered abroad throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. Remember what I just read in Acts chapter 1-8? Shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And so God has a way of making his will happen, of making his plans work out, of guiding his people even whenever they are ignorant, even whenever they may be absolutely stupid, right? I'm not calling the apostles stupid, by the way. But we talked a little bit here in the past, just in the past few services, I can't remember which one it was, about discerning the Lord's will, of finding the Lord's will. And God had told them the will, his will. They still hadn't copped onto it, and God was still able to guide them to perform his will as long as they were open to his will. The problem comes whenever we are resistant to his will, when we deny his will, when we don't want his will, then he says, fine then, right? And so anyway, they were scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Now, I'm not going to stick with this very long because I don't really have any answers for it. But everyone was scattered except the apostles. The apostles stayed right there in Jerusalem. It could be just that they thought, okay, of all people, let them scatter, but we've got to stand here. We've got to stand in the gap. We've got to be strong. We've got to be brave. We'll face death. We'll face persecution here in Jerusalem. Maybe that's what was going on. I don't know. 
but the apostles were standing firm. Maybe it was that they were seeing that they needed to shepherd these ones that were being persecuted because many of them were in prison, right? Many of them were running scared. And so maybe they were staying around being shepherds to those sheep that were being scattered and beaten and persecuted and all those things. I don't know what the what the the uh, what the reasoning is behind that, but the apostles stayed behind. Maybe they were just being brave. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial, made lamentation over him. In verse three, and Saul made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. So this was the way that he was going about things. Anywhere that he received word that there was a Christian, there was like a, he had all these informants. They had all this intelligence going on of show me where there's Christians at. I want to find them, every single one of them. I'm going to beat them. I'm going to lock them up. I'm going to do whatever I can to snuff out this new sect, this new religion before it has a chance to take off. And so in verse number four, we've seen the the instigator here. We've seen what it is that God is using to stir up, to uh, get things moving. But in verse number four, it says, Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. See, they could move them. They could scatter them. They could... Uh, They could persecute them, but they couldn't get them to be quiet. They couldn't get them to be quiet. Everywhere they were going, they were telling about their faith in Jesus. They were telling about what God had done for them. They were testifying in all places, even though that was what was turning their lives upside down, even though that was what was causing the persecution to come upon them. Everywhere they went, they were telling people about Jesus. And so as a result... There were many people who were getting saved, and this was fanning the flames of the gospel going on. And so I see in this three different reasons for this persecution. I've kind of covered them somewhat just in, as we've been looking at this, but I see three different reasons for this persecution. And the very first one is what we've already looked at is to scatter the people, to scatter the people. If it wasn't for the persecutions, they would have remained at Jerusalem. But because the persecution arose, people left for their safety. But as I said, they didn't stay silent. Everywhere they went, they took the gospel and people were being saved. The second reason for this persecution, and by the way, I'm bringing this out because God always has a reason. He always has a purpose. Okay. The second reason was to sever. So to scatter and to sever. And what I mean by severing is Christ didn't come to make a Hebrew church. He didn't come to make a Jewish church. He came to, to espouse a bride unto himself, a completely new and unhindered... Uh, I'm careful what, what terms I use, okay? But something that the world had never seen before, a completely new organism, okay? It's not an organization, it's an organism. And so in order to sever Christianity to, from, or from Judaism, in order to ensure that Christianity didn't just become another Jewish sect, in order to, uh, to separate these things, God brought this persecution because it was the Jewish leaders that were persecuting the Christians. 
So for everyone looking on, they would have seen and said, clearly this isn't of the temple. Clearly this isn't from the Sanhedrin. This isn't from the Pharisees. This isn't from the Jewish leaders. It's something completely different, something completely separate, right? And so it severed this, and it was necessary because we find all the way through the New Testament that the Jews had a hard time separating their Jewishness from their Christianity. They had a hard time uh, making a difference in this identity because even uh, whenever Paul starts going amongst the Gentiles, the Gentiles start getting saved. What do they try to do? What do the Jews try to do? Yeah, so they're trying to cause the Gentiles to keep the law. They're trying to bring this back together and bring uh, Judaism and Christianity together. But this persecution that we're seeing is making a divide. It's making a split. And it's making it a lot easier for these Jewish believers to separate from the Jewish religion. Yes, they're still Jews. That's still who they are as a nationality. But they have to separate their nationality from their religion. Okay? Separate their nationality from their religion. And that would have been hard for them to do, but whenever whenever your religion starts persecuting you, it's a little bit easier to get rid of it, right? And so they had to sever their religion from their nationality. And how much worse do you think it would have been that they struggled with overcoming this desire to marry together Judaism and Christianity had the persecution never began? If they would have just existed peacefully side by side and there was an intermixing between these two religions and kind of a, a bit of a bastardized religion formed, then that would have permeated all of Christianity, wouldn't it? As the gospel was finally being carried out to the other regions, it would have been very Jewish in in all of its uh in all of its identity, really, right? And what would have happened if Christianity would have remained Jewish in flavor, for lack of better terms, whenever it came to the Samaritans and it came to uh, the Gentiles? Do you think that the Samaritans and the Gentiles would have accepted a Jewish Christianity? One that came with circumcision and the Ten Commandments? All the dietary laws and keeping of all those dietary... Do you think that would have been palatable to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles? No, it wouldn't have. And so they would have brought in all of these customs and traditions of the Jews into Christianity that God never intended to be within Christianity, and they would have caused Christianity to not go any further than just another Jewish sect. It was needful that there be this persecution so there would be a separating of these two worldviews, of these two uh, religious systems, or else it would have, in essence, it would have limited Christianity so much. And by the way, we don't strip away things just to make it more palatable to the world. But we don't add on unbiblical things that are going to be offensive to the world, right? I think we've, we've, we've done really 
poorly at that as Christians, attacking on all of our traditions and all of our preferences and adding things to Christianity that God never intended to be there and causing Christianity to become more offensive to the world than it needs to be. Christianity is already going to be offensive to the world, but it needs to uh, confront them and convict them not to push them away. Okay, Just the fact that we come with uh, the truth of God's word that all men are sinners, all men are in need of salvation. If they don't repent, if they don't have a change of mind and accept Christ as their Savior, then they're going to have uh, eternal punishment in a place called hell. That's offensive enough without us bringing all these other things. It's less like, yeah, that's weird. Do I have to become a weirdo to be a Christian? Right? And so anyway, there was a need for this to sever it. Uh, as I said, many Gentiles would have never accepted Christianity without this separation. So the first thing we saw was to scatter, then to sever. The third thing is to stimulate, to stimulate. Comfort brings complacency, right? And so things were going well in Jerusalem, and as long as they were at peace, as long as they were enjoying all of the fellowship, as long as they were enjoying the, the benefits of being believers, without the persecution, they would have been content to stay right there. But when the persecution came, the comfort and the complacency left, and then they began to get to work, get to action. Because they could have just been kind of lulled to sleep there in, in Jerusalem, right? I think this is the state of Christianity today as well. Because we have become very comfortable in Christianity. In most places in the world, there's still places where persecution exists, right? Mm -hmm. uh, communist nations, China, and different places. Mm -hmm. But in Western Christianity, uh, it's become comfortable. Uh, especially in the past few generations where Christianity was seen as being uh, admirable, it had been acceptable, it was something that uh, was seen as a virtue rather than a vice, right? And so if you were a Christian, then everybody was like, hey, that's great, we're glad you're a Christian. So it's seen as acceptable, it's comfortable, and it doesn't bring any kind of resentment or pressure against us. We can just go about our lives wear our Christian name, we can go to church, we can read our Bibles, we can carry our Bibles around with us, whatever we want to do, and not receive any backlash, not receive any discomfort. Now, in recent days, this is beginning to unwind a little bit. There's getting to be a little bit more pushback against Christianity. As the world gets further and further away from God and against God's tenets and his precepts, as they start becoming more and more immoral, then it's going to be become more and more offensive to them whenever Christianity uh, holds to biblical convictions, right? And so you're seeing Christians start to receive some pushback, it becoming unpopular to be openly a Christian in the public square, uh, it becoming unpopular to hold Christian principles and to live by Christian principles and to draw the line where the Bible draws the line, and if you do, then you'll be labeled as hateful or be a bigot or a homophobe or all these different things within society, right? They start calling names. And immediately we start calling out persecution, but this is mild, right? But we're just now starting to see this pushback. 
And anytime that these kind of things are injected into us, it starts pushing us out of our comfort zone. It causes us to make a choice. Okay? And as we see here, many of the believers were leaving this area and going and spreading the gospel wherever they went, and they were zealous for the sake of the gospel. But I also wonder how many others stayed in Jerusalem and kept their mouths shut. I wonder how many undercover Christians there were, or how many that were like King Agrippa that was almost persuaded, but they wouldn't quite buy into Christianity because of the hardships and the persecutions. So you have both things going on, right? But what I'm saying here is for us as Christians, it's easy for us to become comfortable, for us to become complacent. And with that, we keep quiet. We keep to our own little circle and we don't ever attempt to go out and do what God has told us to do. And that's getting the gospel out in other places. And uh, even as a church, we need to, to be better about this of trying to be a witness to others, of trying to uh, see the gospel go out beyond our Jerusalem, our Judea, and our Samaria. I would like to see us as a church uh, in the future supporting missionaries and, and uh, uh, seeing the gospel being spread in other countries from the efforts that we're doing here. Uh, for us, uh, making more efforts to just seeing the gospel going out in our Jerusalem here, our Samaria, our immediate area. But a lot of times it takes God bringing in something that makes us uncomfortable. Something that's going to cause us to get past our complacency and to get moving because if we're comfortable, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to be engaging the same way. We're not going to be making the same efforts because it's easy just to coast, right? And so, as I said, the, God, the Great Commission wasn't just for them. It's for us, too. And so we must not get comfortable in our Jerusalem. I also want to say that uh, this idea of severing is applicable as well because sometimes uh, old habits die hard, right? And a lot of us have different things that have become ingrained in us, become a part of us even before we get saved that we are tempted to hang on to even after we get saved. This is the same thing with the Jews with Judaism. They clung to that. They held on to that to the place where God ended up destroying the temple, running them out of their land, getting rid of the priesthood and, get, and taking away the Jewish religion altogether because God didn't come to make a another Jewish religion or add on to the Jewish religion. Uh, Jesus says that he uh, came not to uh, destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And the law was fulfilled. That was done away with, right? And so they were still trying to hang on to that. Uh, Jesus says in the one place, uh, a bit of a parable of putting new wine into old wineskins. The old wineskins was the old religion, the old law. And he says, what I'm doing is not going to uh, fit into that. If you try to press it in to the old religious system, it's going to burst. It's going to explode and the wine is going to be ruined. So he says, we've got to get outside of this Jewish mindset. We've got to get out of these old habits. And so old ways die hard. And sometimes God has to 
bring things into our lives to help us to sever some of those ties, to help us get rid of some things that are uh, a hindrance to us, a hindrance to our walk with him. And he'll bring about circumstances and situations to sever some things from our lives, to separate us from some things, and to stimulate us in uh, the work that he'd have us to do. Now I need to move forward on this. Starting with verse number five, Philip the deacon went down to Samaria, and we've talked about Samaria before. Okay, uh, just to give a a very brief, simple history on Samaria. Whenever the northern kingdom was carried away in, by the Assyrians, you read through like the book of Second uh, Kings, and you read through Chronicles, and you find Samaria being mentioned often. Right? Everybody familiar with that? But Samaria is mentioned very much different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was the capital city of the kingdom of Israel, of the northern kingdom, right? It was the capital city. That was where the palace was. That was where the king lived. But whenever Israel was carried away by the Assyrians, they took away all of the nobility, all of the wealthy, all of the uh, skilled laborers, all of the best of the workforce, and they left behind only the poorest and most unskilled people, and they left them behind in the land. And to replace all the ones that they carried away, they took people from other lands and brought them here. Okay, and so this was a tactic of uh, of governments back then that were engaging in conquering and colonizing. They said if we leave them there in their land as a intact people group, then they're going to be more powerful. They're going to pose more of a risk to us. So if we can take and scatter people around, mix them here and there and yonder, we're going to mix up their cultures. We're going to take them off of their lands that they're familiar with. They'll no longer have the home field advantage, okay? And so we're going to take people from here and move them over here, and people from here and move them here, and we're going to mix people all together. And so that's what they did with uh, Israel carried away some of them, brought more in. And whenever they brought these new people in, God was causing pestilence. He was causing all kinds of weird and bad things to happen to these people that came in. And they cried out to the the kings of Assyria, we need help. The gods are angry. That was the way they interpreted it. They said the gods are angry because we don't know how to worship them. And so they brought in some of the religious leaders from the northern kingdom of Israel to teach the people, the new people that came into the land, how to worship the God of Israel. The problem with that is that Israel had separated and became northern kingdom, southern kingdom under Jeroboam, right? Under Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was afraid that his people would come down to the southern kingdom of Judah and worship at the temple. And so he modified the Jewish religion. He set up cattle, the golden cows, two different places. He set up golden cows, and he says, this is the place that you're going to worship. He set up uh, altars, and he made the Jewish religion slightly different. He made it somewhat pagan. And he installed his own priests that were not Levites, And this was the religious system that was brought back in to teach the pagans how to be Jews. Are y'all following me? I know this is pretty mixed up. Okay? 
And so this was the religion of the Samaritans. And so there was a mixed ethnicity because the Jews that were left there that were poor, that were unskilled, were intermarrying with the Gentiles that were brought in to populate the place. So there were mixed marriages, and the bloodlines were part Jew, part Gentile. And the religion was part Jewish, part pagan. And so you had this mixed up mess. And so you come to the New Testament, and the Jews hate the Samaritans. And the Samaritans aren't too fond of the Jews. They are in an argument between which one is worshiping God the right way because they both claim to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they had different traditions. They had different priesthoods. They had different uh, holy days. They had different ways of worshiping. And so the Jews despised the Samaritans and called them half-breeds. Okay? And they said that the way that they worshiped was an abomination. And you know that if you are a people group that's called an abomination and a half-breed, you're not going to care too much about the people who refer to you by that way, right? And so there's this constant problem back and forth between the Jews and the Samaritans. But if you look at a map of Israel, it's kind of like a donut, not perfectly around, but Samaria is in the middle of Israel. And we've talked in the past about how the Israelites detested Samaria so much, if they needed to go from the south to the north or the north to the south, they would go around Samaria instead of going through it because they did not want to defile themselves with the Samaritans. So whenever Jesus told them in Acts 1.8, you'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, all Judea, and Samaria, a lot of times, and I know this is the way I was growing up, I had this idea that this was like, you know, you, you look at like a dartboard or a, uh, a target or something, and there's the concentric circles. And like it's constantly expanding, and I always thought, okay, Jerusalem is my immediate area, and then Judea was going to be like my province or my county, the larger area. Then Samaria is going to be outside of that, and then it goes to the rest of the world and covers all of that, right? Anyone else is kind of along that line? But what Jesus was actually saying whenever he told them, you're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Samaria is the people that you don't like. Samaria is the people who are detestable to you. The ones who are the outcasts, the ones that are unloved, the ones that you want nothing to do with, I still want you to love them and be witnesses to them. And so this was his plan. Now, in the grand scheme of things here in Acts chapter 8, we're seeing that, of course, the Samaritans were half Jew and half Gentile. God didn't, or Jesus didn't die for a Jewish bride. It wasn't just to be Jewish in nature, but we're seeing now the gospel going, not just from the Jews, but now it's starting to go into the Gentiles, even if it's just half Gentile, right? But the reason why the Jews were so hesitant to go into Samaria was because they hated the Samaritans. Now, Jesus had kind of broken the barrier a little bit whenever he went into Samaria. He took the apostles into Samaria. But I kind of wonder if when this persecution arose, it was the very zealous Jews that were persecuting, right? 
Where would be one of the safest places for you to hide as a Christian whenever the very zealous Jews are persecuting you? Go where they don't want to go. Right? And so where's the safest place for me? Well, they are not going to defile themselves by coming to Samaria. Right? And so this is precisely what happened is the Jews were going, or the, not the Jews, but the Christians were going into Samaria. And as they were coming into Samaria, the Samaritans were probably scratching their heads saying, aren't you a Jew? Don't you think that we're unclean? Don't you think that we're defiled? Well, let me tell you, I've kind of had a change of heart about this. There's been something that's happened to me that caused me to see you differently. Let me tell you about Jesus. It broke down a barrier, right? And so with that, the Samaritans began believing. They began getting saved. And God's plan was being fulfilled through persecution. See, God doesn't do things the way that we think that he ought to do them. The way that we perceive things is often not the way that God's going to be working. Because we could, we could say the, the oft-uttered phrase, if I was God, wouldn't do it that way, right? But how was he going to motivate, how was he going to move these very uh, prejudiced Jews to leave out their comfort zone there in Jerusalem and to go to a place where they have always, for generations, been taught these people were abominable and were wicked and were all these bad things. How am I going to motivate these people to go to those people? Persecution. It was ingenious at work, right? And so we see God in charge. We see God knows what he's doing, that even through bad circumstances, he is bringing about his plan and his will that he knows how to make his will known to people, right? Even whenever maybe they're a little bit dense. And that's comforting to me. And so anyway, um, as I said, this is documenting a step away from Jewish-only Christianity. Now Samaritans are coming in. It's expanding Christianity. It is breaking down barriers uh, look in uh, verse number 14. It says, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem, remember they stayed there, right? When the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, through no help from them, right? They sent unto Peter, or sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And so this is breaking down that barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. It's breaking down a barrier in the minds of the Christians of saying, okay, this is a Jewish religion, and the Gentiles are out there, to this is a human religion. This is for all mankind, for God so loved the world, right? And so they found out that there was no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles in Christianity, and Christianity wasn't Jewish. Because I, I would like to have seen the look on the apostles' face, okay? Just whenever they received the news, hey, Samaritans are getting saved. Wait, what? That wasn't part of my plan. 
oh, we better go check this out. And they go down and they hear the testimony of the Samaritans and say, yes, we believe Jesus. We don't want anything to do with Judaism, but we want Jesus. And they hear their testimony and they say, well, they believe. And the Lord and his Holy Spirit gives them the wisdom that they need to realize they need to lay hands on them, impart to them the Holy Spirit. And so whenever they do this, pray over them, they receive the Holy Spirit. And there is some sort of a uh, event that takes place, some sort of a confirmation that takes place showing that they receive the Holy Spirit. Most likely it was speaking in tongues, signs and wonders, things like that, because that's what typically followed uh, whenever God was wanting to authenticate something. Whenever God was wanting to say, this is of me, I did this, whenever he is transitioning something. Okay? And so they laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit, and then the, the apostles are just sitting there scratching their head and saying, didn't see that one coming, God. You surprised me again. But I can see clearly that you've accepted them the same way as you accepted us. You're treating them the exact same way as you treated us. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile in the eyes of God. Well, this is mind-blowing information for the apostles, right? But it's breaking down these barriers between them, and it is expanding the church. And so as all of this was going on, there was a man that I kind of skipped over here that was observing all of these things. In verse number nine, it says, but. It's always interesting whenever you read the word but in the Bible, okay? It means that we're going to be changing direction, that something different is going to happen here. Uh, in verse number eight, we read, there was great joy in that city. That's what happens whenever people get saved. That's what happens whenever people are following the Lord. Even during the persecution, there was great joy that was going on because people were being born again. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they gave, excuse me, to the him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the, the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. And so from this account of Simon here, we can see that the occult is real enough, right? The Bible doesn't gloss over that. It doesn't make it out as if it's just some sort of a fairy tale or some sort of a pretend type thing. But this man named Simon had real power. He was able to perform real signs and real wonders. He was able to convince the the people there of Samaria, that he was someone of great power, of great authority. And I've talked with Peter at length about things that happened down in, in the area that he grew up in and some of the, the, the pagan practices and the occult things that's going on there. And it's not pretend, it's real. It is of the, the devil. There's demonic activity there. It is real. And the Bible doesn't make any qualms about that. It's, it's a real thing. The devil does have power. And he does sometimes allow that power to be used by mankind in order to bring men in subjection to him, right? 
And so we can see some of the markers here of what was going on with Simon. We find that uh, he used satanic powers to gain wealth, to gain power, to gain influence, to oppress others. These were all things that he was doing. And so he used these things to gain wealth, power, influence, to oppress. And the Bible tells us that we are to try the spirits. Try the spirits to see what sort they be. And as we look at this, there are clear markers of false prophets, right? This man, it says that he was giving out that himself was some great one. He said, look at what I can do. Look at all of these things that I'm making happen. Look at the powers that I have, the abilities that I have, how God is working through me, how God is blessing. Look at what I am able to do. And he was using that to prop himself up, to raise himself up on a pedestal so that he could gain power, so he could gain influence, so that he could prosper. It was very selfish and self-gratifying. And we look into false prophets and false religion today, it still has the same markers. It is very man-focused. It is very, very much seeking to gain power, to gain influence, to gain prosperity, and to gain control. And control is a big thing, right? Control is a big thing. Because it says here, verse number 10 of chapter 8, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. Now that's blasphemous, isn't it? They're not praising God, they're praising this man. And they are fearing this man. They are under the control of this man. And whatever this man said, they would have believed, they would have done it. If he would have commanded them to jump off a cliff, they would have done it. Right? They believed this man was the great power of God. He bewitched them through sorceries, it says, but whenever the gospel came to them, this is a, a big change, right? Whenever they heard the word of God preached, verse number 12, when they, uh, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. This presents a problem for Simon. Simon has held them captive all this time. Simon has bewitched them. Simon has used this to prop himself up, to make out as if he was something great, to impress all of these people, and now he's seeing a shift. He's seeing his power leaving him. He's seeing that control go away, and so he needs some sort of a way to maintain that power, to maintain that grip. See, the only thing that can, can combat falsehood and lies is the truth. And this is what Philip brought. It was something that they had never heard. It was something they'd never realized. They heard the truth. They believed it. They were baptized. And then we come to verse number 13. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs. And so what was it about Philip and Christianity that captivated Simon? Anybody following along? Works of power. What was it? Works of power. The works of power. It was just a continuation. It was like, he almost saw it as a level up. Okay, if you ever play games and stuff, he saw it as a level up. He's like, I've been operating on this level. This guy is above me. Okay? 
He's like on the next level for me. How can I level up? How can I get what he's got? That also shows us something else about the occult and the power of Satan that works in this world today. It is always inferior to the things of God. Satan can make counterfeits. He can make cheap knockoffs. He might impress some people, but it is still not near the caliber of what God has. Okay? And so he was watching the miracles. He was seeing all of the signs, and he wanted it. Even more so whenever the apostles came down from Jerusalem in the passage I read from 14 down to 17. Verse 18 says, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given him, he offered them money. This is the way that he was used to things working. Money makes the world go around, right? And so he says, If I offer them money, then I'm able to purchase this power and this authority to myself. Then I'm able to level up. Then I'm able to gain this power that they've got. Surely I can buy it off because anything is for sale for the right price. Isn't that the, the world's philosophy? And so he gets a surprise here in verse number uh, 19, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy, the Holy Ghost. Verse 20, But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee because thou hast, not, uh, hast thought that the, the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So what we find here with Simon is he was not interested in the things of God. I don't know that he actually believed the things of God, but he was interested in gaining this power, this ability. He was impressed by what the disciples, the apostles were doing. Okay, So I got a question for you, a question of opinion. Okay, I'll, I'll put that as a, a preface, preface there. Mm -hmm. Was Simon saved? Going through that already, you 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 said that he's not saved. I I still think that he is saved. <laughs> he might be saved, but he's still reverting back to his old ways. <laughs> I don't think so. You don't think so? Mm -hmm. Should we have a vote? <laughs> <laughs> Transformation of life, really. Then what about verse thirteen? He said he believed also. Mm. Okay. Yes. I wouldn't put it in there if he wasn't saved. Saving faith, head head knowledge, and heart who knows? God knows. Only, at least in this context, it says they believed and baptized and believed they were saved. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think what Peter says in first friend one is, no matter whether we're saved or not, they are not right with God. Mm -hmm. Full stop. So whether we can argue whether you were saved or not, but mm -hmm. Peter says your heart's not right with God. Get your heart right with God. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that means repentance or it means getting saved, okay. but we do know that for certain. <laughs> See, I should have got this quicker so we'd have more discussion, right? <laughs> Anybody else got an opinion? Yeah, I, I think he was saved with just his motive behind 
there is power as it was before. It made sure humankind wasn't saved. Mm-hmm. But according to scriptures, as confirmed, he even followed the 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 disciples, the apostles, I mean, to be baptized. So mm-hmm. those are the signs of someone who believes in saved. Despite we may say he has he has his own ways of of believing before he was looking for power because he even offered money. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think what it means he was saved because the Bible says he was baptized, which means he believed first to be baptized. You weren't just saved. Okay. <laughs> but just to, just to ask this, is everyone who's baptized, is everybody saved? Oh, yeah. Bat- baptism doesn't save anyone, right? Okay. Yeah, but I guess those are the, 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 the looking out we may say what what we may qualify someone mm-hmm. to say saved. Mm-hmm. It's not just walking on the street. You have to believe first. Mm-hmm. It shows interest in things of God. And then baptizing may be one of confirmation as well. So we, we want to run away of saying mm-hmm. only saved is besides those things that are less than they Okay. You know that we can be saved and we can go to the world. Mm-hmm. Something happens and we can go. Uh, you know, something. Mm-hmm. You don't know. We will see. We find out. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is quite clear when he says, "Not everybody calls me Lord, Lord, but that's the will of God." Those, you know, you give me not prophesying in name. Did we not do all these wonderful things? Depart from me, and never knew you. Yep. So, outward display of, of faith is necessarily. Um, a um, proof of inner inner transformation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I will say that no one can say dogmatically yes. one way or the other. We can't judge a man's salvation. Yes. We can judge fruit, right? But we can't judge a man's salvation. Only God knows. Yes. But with that being stated, I'll be surprised if I see him in heaven one of these days. Okay? And I've been on both sides of this, by the way, just full full transparency here. I've been on both sides of this, and I'm still not sure where I land. But I lean toward the the belief that he isn't saved. Okay, and one of the reasons I said that, one of the reasons I used to think all the time, yes, he is saved, is what you brought out. It says he believed, right? Yes. But the Bible also says the devils believe and tremble, right? Okay. The they believe, but what do you believe? There are lots of people. You go to almost anyone in Ireland. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Right? Does that make them saved? But what do you believe about Jesus? Okay? And I think something that brings a little bit of clarity in this is a comparison between uh, verse 12 and verse 13 of, of Acts 8. In verse number 12, it says, But when they, the Samaritans, believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. Okay? So what did they believe? The Word of God, right? Their belief was based upon the truth of God's Word. Look at verse 13. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs that were done. So what was it that got Simon's attention? It wasn't the Word of God, was it? It was these signs, these miracles, these works, right? And so people 
entertain Christian religion, Christianity, for different reasons. Some people are looking at it, what can I get out of it? I will come and give lip service to the things of Christ, hoping to receive a benefit, right? Because the things of it impress me, because I think that somehow this is going to work toward my favor, I'll go ahead. Yeah, I believe Jesus. There's nothing difficult about that, right? But what do you believe about Jesus? There's a difference between believing Jesus as a historical figure, as a good teacher, as someone who existed. You can even believe that he died on a cross and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. But there's a difference between believing him, believing in him as a historical figure, as a religious figure, and believing upon him as a savior. And this is where the difference comes in. It's not, not believing him just in a broad sense, but whenever we hear the gospel, the gospel simply says, I am a sinner, I can't save myself. Jesus paid the penalty, he paid the price, and he is offering to save my soul if I will trust in what he has done alone. Okay? And so if I believe upon him as a savior, as the son of God, sufficient to forgive, to pardon, to reconcile me to God, then I have salvation. If I believe on him as a historical figure, as a good man, as a teacher, so do the devils, right? And so what you believe makes a difference. There are even, if we turn this to the flip side, there is a lot of people who reject Jesus, okay? And they don't reject the Jesus of the Bible, they reject the Jesus of religion. And so whenever you come to rejecting him, what are you rejecting? Are you rejecting the, the God that mankind is made up, that religion is made up? Or are you rejecting the God of the Bible that loves you and died for you? You know, that's, there's a difference there. And so with Simon here, we can't say for sure whether he was saved or not, okay? But I do want to point out just a few things about him for our, con our consideration. I know I'm going over, so I need to, need to bring this to a close. But it seems his belief was shallow and superficial, founded on what he could get out of it. And it is a warning for us today that those who make professions just out of sensationalism, just uh, going with the flow of what's going on at that time or seeking to receive something or to better their situation or to improve their life, oftentimes those are going to be false professions, right? Uh, and so if they're based on selfishness, they're rarely sincere. Uh, we also find that it takes the foolishness of preaching. Not the signs, the wonders, the sensationalism, the miracles, and all that. It takes the foolishness of preaching. Uh, but in verse number 20, Peter says that he would perish. Perish is a word that's talking about not just dying, but it's talking about destruction. It's associated with damnation. And so he says, your money perish with you. That seems fairly damning to me as far as whether or not the guy was saved. Your money perish with you. You are perishing. Okay? Not only that, in verse number 21, as Brother Fergus pointed out, his heart was not right with God. He says, your heart is not right with God. 
He tells him in another place here, you have no part or lot in this matter. He says, this has nothing to do with you. You're not even in this group. He's putting him on the outside, right? Verse 22, repentance is needed. And I know that even as Christians, we still, whenever we fall away from God, whenever we sin, when we need to repent, right? So that could be, you know, either way. But then in verse number 23, it says, I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What does that bond of iniquity mean? You're in bondage to sin. Doesn't seem to me like he has been freed by Christ. Right? He says you're still in bondage to sin. And so I lean toward now that I don't believe the man was saved. And honestly, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter to our salvation, our lives, whether the man was lost or saved, but it is a lesson to us. The Bible tells us that we need to uh, examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. What is it that you have trusted in? What is it that you're believing on? Why is it that you became a Christian? Is it because you needed a Savior? Or because you were hoping to get something out of Him? Has there ever been a time that you realized that you were a sinner on your way to hell? Is there ever a time that you realized that you were lost and that you needed a Savior? Or did you just sign up to Christianity? Did you just join in with the group? Did you just follow the gang? There's a difference there, right? And so we can be deceived. And not only that, we can see that even the, the leadership of the church here was being deceived. You all pointed out that he was baptized, right? Philip said, hey, he made a profession. Let's take him and baptize him. We are fallible. We don't know. We can't see into a person's heart. Just this discussion tells us that we don't know. But the Bible warns us that there are wheat, or there are tares amongst the wheat. And he told the in that parable that the tares came up amongst the wheat and the servants wanted to go out and pluck the tares up out from amongst the wheat. And the, the Lord of the harvest said, let them grow up together. And then during the harvest, they will be separated. Right? So how does that apply to us today? We don't know who's lost, who's saved. It's not up for us to figure out who's lost and who's saved. If we go about trying to examine everyone and try to root out all the false professors from amongst the believers, we're going to cause damage. We're going to ruin the crops. And we're going to impede upon the, the task of the one whose job it is to harvest. That's Christ. He's going to sort it out one of these days. He's going to make it plain one of these days. But until then, we need to be examining ourselves, not everyone else. Now, that might sound a little bit hypocritical after we just spent the last 15 minutes examining Simon. <laughs> right? But we need to be examining ourselves. We need to be looking at our own lives. We need to be examining our own motives and getting our eyes on Jesus instead of on uh, all these other things that cause mankind to uh, fall into religion. We need to not fall into religion. We need to fall in love with Jesus, right? Right. It is only Christ and His Holy Spirit that can truly transform a life. It's only Him that can do that work that's needed in the inner man. And without it, it's not going to happen. Without His Spirit, it's not going to happen. No matter how hard we try. And so with that, I'm completely out of time. There's still one more thing I was wanting to touch, but we're not going to do that. We'll save it for next week. Okay? So does anyone have any questions?
questions or comments on what we've looked at today? I know we've looked at several things. I think this why I met the, the, the main mission of a, a scripture in the Bible that says that examine yourself whether mm -hmm. you still be in the faith. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that most Christians we don't do. We don't do draw up a checklist regarding our mm -hmm. life in Christ, which will go a long way to help us live a day a day with Christ and his principles. Mm -hmm. We don't do carry out a regular examination mm -hmm. of our lives. So I just want to say that let us constantly do an examination. Am mm -hmm. I still in the faith? The faith I professed 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Am I still in the faith? Am I still in tune with Jesus Christ? Mm -hmm. If not, there must be an, a complete overhaul of our lives. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I met Bishop Baptism as regards, you know, look at the life of a, a, a Ethiopian eunuch mm -hmm. after he had you know, the preaching by the apostle and he got his truth. What prevents me from being baptized? Is, after he had responded to the gospel preached to him, mm -hmm. was baptized. Mm -hmm. Baptism will not offer you salvation, right. certainly, but it's a mark of, you know, Getting baptized into the body of Christ in the Baptist where I have been a believer for many years mm -hmm. in Nigeria, mm -hmm. there's a baptismal class. Before mm -hmm. members are baptized, they are taking through the rudiments of the life of Christ. Mm -hmm. Before it's about about six to eight weeks mm -hmm. before they are baptized, and after baptism, they are enrolled into the beginners class. Mm -hmm. They are taught. The beginning, the new life in Jesus Christ. It's not automatic. Mm -hmm. You must undergo all this process before you fully you have kind of come into the membership of the church. Mm -hmm. So that is a process. Mm -hmm. The Lord help us to really understand it as it is being taught. Mm -hmm. The Lord help us in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. okay. So, um, yeah, good points there. As far as the examining ourselves to, to whether we be in the faith. The criteria which we examine ourselves by is the scripture. Okay? It's the scripture. And it's not we're examining our works to see if our works line up enough, if we're performing good enough, if our performance is, is great enough to merit us being saved, because we are saved by faith. And if we come to Christ the way that He says to come, if we come by Christ, okay, then we are saved. Okay? It's not something that has to constantly be re examined. But what he's challenging the people there, whatever he writes that to examine yourself, see whether you're being in the faith, there are plenty of people, plenty of tares amongst the wheat. And he says, make sure, make sure of your salvation, okay? Because you can be fooled. He goes back to the passage, I believe, that Fergus referred to there earlier, that there'd be many in that day that would say, Lord, Lord, have we not uh, done all these things? And he's going to say, I never knew you. By the way, he doesn't say, I used to knew you or I... I knew you at one point in time. He says, I never did. You've never been mine. Never. Even though you've done all these works. So if you are dependent on your works for salvation, you're in trouble, right? So whenever he says, examine to see if you're in the faith, you need to look, Do you have? did you trust in Christ as your Savior to forgive your sins and save your soul? Have you had the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you see him working? Do you have a love for the brethren? Those are markers of salvation, right?
And if you're saved or if you make a profession and there is no evidence that the Holy Spirit ever took up residence in your life, you have cause for concern. I'm not saying that you have to perform at a certain level or you're not saved. I'm saying if there is no evidence in your life, you better be checking yourself and making sure by the Bible that you trusted in Christ as your Savior, right? Now, as far as like the uh, the difference with baptism and all the things that you were talking about there, we'll cover that more next week whenever we get to the Ethiopian eunuch. That's actually, I believe, next week that we'll be looking at that. But the Bible never says there has to be a class. Now, it's something that a lot of churches have instituted and different things to try to uh, weed out some of the easy believism and different things that goes on. Uh, to try to get people grounded before they baptize them because they equate baptism with church membership, mm-hmm. okay? And so before you become a member, we want to make sure you're actually saved, okay? But with what we see in the Bible, the Ethiopian eunuch, what does hinder me to be baptized? Do you believe? Yes, I believe. Okay, baptize you. Mm-hmm. Okay, good thoughts. Anything else? Okay, well, we better wrap it up then, and we'll take a a break and come back for the, the second service. <coughs> Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings. We thank you so much for uh, this time in your word, for the, the interaction with your people, the word for the, the uh, ability that we have just to reason through your scripture and to think out things, Lord. And we just ask you, Lord, to work in our hearts, Lord. We, we thank you, Lord, for this example of how you cause the, the church to expand even in spite of their complacency, Lord, how you move them out of their comfort zone and uh, you led them to to go to places, Lord, and uh, to preach to people and to tell folks about you. And Lord, that you honestly, the Bible says that you would build your church and you do it. And Lord, I just pray, help us to learn from these principles, put them in place and in practice in our lives. We thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray, and amen.